Award-winning poet, filmmaker, and speaker, Max Stossel, is named by Forbes as one of the best storytellers of the year. His performances across five continents have been described as mind-expanding, profound, emotive, and hilarious all at once. His work has been translated to 14 languages, won multiple film festivals, and has been viewed online over 20 million times. Apart from poetry and art, he also serves as advisor for youth in the education organization. Max Stossel, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks for having me. So we've really been enjoying your film, Words That Move, Seeing Through Another Eye, your hybrid performance piece that takes in so many things. I believe you selected a poem to share with our listeners. Yeah, and thinking about what to share, I figured this might be something of an introduction. And sometimes I will be at an event and the very first thing someone will ask me is they'll say, hi, what do you do? And not that that's how you're presenting it now, but... I find that to be a complicated question because I think they're asking to get a general sense of my power and income. And besides the fact that my answer won't give you one, that seems like a pretty dumb basis on which to judge someone. The I'm a poet, and that might be confusing if you were expecting a more traditional answer. Like I'm a freelancer, doctor, investment banker, but what's frustrating is that those people aren't their jobs either. And look, maybe they're just making small talk. They asked one question after all, and after all this jabber and all, you probably need a Tylenol. Okay, I'm ready for that follow-up of, oh, wait, so like you make money as a poet? Sometimes. Not all the time. It's not like every time you hear me rhyme and make another couple dimes, but I'm doing fine. It's just something that I am. And you might have preconceived notions of struggling artists and depressing poets, but I happen not to fall into either of those categories. So you see, I have as many problems with the poet label as it has with me. But I've done some thinking on it, and I'm not sure there's a better word for it. I guess I could say I serve eloquent messaging tonics. That's been impeccable rhythm and got an ear for the tonics. You know, Earth, this is like a big part of the reason I'm on it. And humanity's suffering seems endlessly chronic. And my words help you tap into a deeper subconscious and figure out how to release your shit from it. Like, like a sonic colonic. I guess I could say, hi, yes, I'm Max. I'm a sonic colonic. Or I could say I make complex concepts a little less convex. I make people who move too fast stop and reflect. I'll put you inside the head of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, looking up at the first meteor shower, perplexed how these beautiful, dangerous, speeding objects could have such complete and utter disrespect for his total territorial dominance when just moments ago he was at the apex having more T-Rex sex than you'd ever expect. I guess I could say I'm a man who injects your mind with the perspective of a T-Rex who just figured out that we're all tiny specks. What do you do? So that's a little something on who I am and what I do. Well, thank you for that very refreshing sonic colonic. That's me. I'm a sonic colonic. And I think that that also leads us in nicely to what you do in your writing and, of course, in your film, Words That Move, is that, you know, we are the stories that we tell ourselves, but we're so much more than that. And you get us to question and move beyond the surfaces. And just as it says in the title, see through another eye. Thank you very much words that move begins and ends with a journey, right? I wonder about the selection process. You touch on so many important themes that we're all going through. I wonder about what it takes to share those intimate moments of your life and our collective lives on stage. Often people will say to me at the end of a show, they'll be like, wow, it was so vulnerable. And I always often have this little jolt of like, huh, like, is it? Because for me, I've also done this enough now that I know when I get up on stage and I share these pieces, I have them framed in a way that are sort of delightful. People like taking them in. I know they're going to be received pretty well on the other end. 
And so for me, it doesn't feel other than like, I care very much and I want people to have it. And I'm sharing something about me or the world that I feel is deeply true. It doesn't feel quite as vulnerable to share. You have to share those on stage because I already, there's a part of me that knows the world wants this, like be third fun or engaging. I've made them as such. And it would feel much more vulnerable to just get up stage and like sit there or stare into somebody's eyes or start talking. But for me, the, yeah, the poetry on stage just feels like I get to share something that feels so right and important and true to me. And I guess my passion for it outweighs the vulnerability. So I believe you have a bad joke. I think, believe you have the big C. The big C. Oh, I do. (laughs) Is it called the big C? I've never heard that. Well, no, I heard that you have dyslexia, but I was wondering, on that note of detaching the meaning from language and, you know, going with the music or being able to hold all the different possibilities that that might open to you, how does that inspire you or does it help you get to other levels of perception? I think so. I always found, I mean, my brain just seems to work a little bit differently. And I think as many, you know, mental quote unquote disorders can be, they also can be superpowers. And I think it does allow me to draw lines and connect dots where other people might not see them. And yeah, I just, I found that, you know, I was in therapy for many years and my therapist was like, I think you have a learning disability. And I was like, no, I don't have a learning disability. I'm not, I'm just not trying hard enough. And she was like, I think you should get tested. And eventually I got tested and my verbal and word skills are very, very high, but reading is like much more towards the middle. And that gap is technically dyslexia. So when I'm reading words on a page, I'm like, I'm not getting the the it. I'm not getting the thing that my brain can do with words when we're talking from those words on the page, which I think very much did translate to my wanting to do so much with the written word and not just wanting to send people the poems themselves in writing, but wanting to turn them into these films or these performances where I can feel and watch as I'm delivering the thing that feels so important to me. If that makes any sense at all. I think that there's so many different kinds of perception that we call dyslexia, but that's a word and it's a whole way of experiencing the world. So you see words as being physical. And so I imagine your spatial awareness is maybe greater than others that are quite linear. That's fascinating. So you don't feel a poem is really, can we say, even finished until it's performed or brought to another new medium? I like that perspective. I often feel like, okay, I've written and now I've got it. Like I get it. And now how am I going to deliver this? How am I going to deliver it to you so that you can feel, you know, it's not exactly what I feel, of course, but feel the seed that I can plant in a way that you'll really take it in and will resonate with you in a way that feels like it lands. And so I often say, like, I've written it, okay, I've written it. And now it's a whole other challenge of how am I going to get this to people? How am I going to share it? And some, you know, some poems, it's, this is really only one person I want to share it with. Sometimes this is just for me. And sometimes I want to, get on a stage and shout this to the world, or I want to make a film that can transcend any stage that I can be on. And that's a very different process. Well, that's so true because writing or performing or the art, it's really a form of also listening and you have to speak to people in the language or communicate to people in the way they will best be able to receive it, right? Yeah, that's the art of communication. And that's I think something that's so hard to do through the screen as well. And that was how I started turning them into films initially was, can I get the essence of this message to land through a screen? And that's actually very hard with spoken word, very hard with this medium, especially in a digital age where everyone's scrolling, 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 and not giving things very much care or attention as we take them in on our screens. And so I really wanted to make things that felt like they were honoring the art itself as I put them into that screen environment. 
Yes, because you really question that both within words that move and under other projects, you get us to question our attention economy and the technologies. And one thing that I don't think is always addressed so much is we are doing more reading, but that's reading also for information or data. It's changed the way we read. Yeah, it's very much changed the way we read and take in information and shortened it and quick bursts and attention spans. We're living in a new world for sure. And how do we communicate in this new world? Not just in a way that gets the reach, because there are whole industries of like, what do I do to get the most likes or the most attention and all of that, which I don't think is very filling as artists. It's like it's sort of a diminishing of our art form to try and play the game because then we're getting the attention and getting the hits as opposed to what do I really want to create? How do I really want to create it? How do I want to display this? And can I do it in a way that breaks through so that, you know, if I do it my way, it's still going to get the attention. Great. But if it doesn't, am I, can I be cool with that? And can I be okay creating what I want to create and knowing that that's what it's about and it's about sharing in an honest, authentic way of what I want to express without letting the tentacles of social media drip into my brain and take over why I'm literally doing the things that I'm doing. Yeah, I think that what's happened with social media is that it was happening already with, if you want to critique our capitalist systems or where there's so many commodities, but our very relationships have become commodities and this kind of loss of the sense of a sacred or beauty for beauty's sake without somebody selling me something here. Yeah, a lot of these challenges that social media has exacerbated, they aren't necessarily new. It's just they poured gasoline on all of the embers. And then at a certain point, are we looking at the embers that existed? Or are we looking at this thing that's pouring gas everywhere and making all of these things that existed before these giant fires? And so it's a tricky one to where do we where do we look to to fight the challenge? But I really like what you said. That feels really true. I agree completely. In your writing, there is a bit of a tussle, a struggle. You bring these things to the surface, but it's always moving towards healing. So going back to the beginning, I want to call them their poem stories. It's a hybrid form. I don't know how you like best. Me neither. <laughs> but that's what's nice because the delivery is a such that, yeah, we know it's going and there's a rhythm and it's rhyming, but it's also just intimate. So it doesn't feel quite formal like poetry is. I grew up learning about it. Yeah, it's somewhat conversational. And ultimately, it's like I'm in the message delivery business. I'm trying to get the essence of it to you. And rhyme and rhythm to me are a tool to help deliver that message. It's not about the floweriness of the writing. It's not about how clever each rhyme was. It's, hey, can I use this as a way of like almost like a song to like just really kind of keep the train running to really get something that feels very important to me and comes out of my heart to land in someone else. And I think that's the vehicle of that is poetry, stories, whatever these things are. That's what they're for, I think. That and expressing themselves and love and truth. Yeah. So you mentioned, obviously, there are big messages, whether we're questioning love or technology or the left and the right. And we could go through the different subjects or themes that you turn your gaze onto. I don't know if you're always drawn to write poetry that has a message, you know, that touches a big theme like to do sometimes is it ever difficult to I know that when you write about love okay that's a, still it's a big theme but do you ever just want to write about something that's you know just away from the big things I know you write about your dog and stuff so it's not always that <laughs> it's often when I'm writing about things that feel trivial or small they often end up connecting to the things that feel bigger and larger and I love you know the dog being an example something that that foam with my dog is very much both about, you know, my relationship with my dog and also about the fullness of existence. <laughs> and I like when it starts small and touches as everything is always connected. And 
I'm, you know, I used to, after I released my first short film, it got, and that was, which was Subway Love, which was that one, which is a part of the larger piece as well. And that was seen millions of times and it got a lot of very nice things said about it. And then afterwards I was like, wait, but what am I doing with all that attention? Can I put that towards a cause or something like that? And the next couple I started to do activist type things, but I will also admit like it didn't feel as filling, like to try to do it as driving the attention towards something just didn't feel as pure and just like expressive as, hey, just here's something I want the world to have. And there's no agenda here. We don't need to fix a problem. I just want to express. And I am very much here to be a champion for art for art's sake, beauty for beauty's sake, and to not need it to be anything more than what it is. And so I think your poetry, it helps us. And as you describe, get outside of ourselves and just recognize the magic, even the magic and the mundanity. Yeah, that's what Subway Love's really about. That message is a very important one to me of noticing the brilliant opportunity and possibility that is present with us every moment and very difficult to notice and actually attune to. And oftentimes I will find a poem starts about one thing and becomes about that in whatever form. And you challenge us to give our God-given insanity a try. I mean, are you of the feeling that, you know, we're all kind of insane and maybe it's the insane ones who don't see it or won't claim not to see it? <laughs> yeah. All right. I think it's, we have such an intensity in society for trying to like push us to all see things the same and to try to like conform all our vision to one sense of right or wrong, or this is the way we're supposed to do things as opposed to like letting our unfiltered, just like what's real for me and what wants to happen and how am I seeing the world? And maybe I'm totally different and weird and out there and outrageous in this way. And what if that's not something to hide, but something to embrace and I certainly enjoy in my own life being a space where friends, loved ones, where I can just like welcome all the weird and welcome whatever idiosyncrasies and quirks are there and not let them be anything that needs changing as opposed to just like what's going on for you. And, you know, there are extreme examples within schizophrenia and other type of mental illnesses that can be really challenging to live with. But I also think there's tons of beauty in them if we're willing to look at them. It's true because society is so so complicated and we have so many things to fix that I just think we learn not to see it. Part of growing up is like almost blinding yourself. And so it takes a lot of courage to see, you know, to keep that sense of wonder alive and ability just to question things. This doesn't have to be normal. This is actually abnormal, but we've just stopped trying to change it. Yeah, I think you're right that children have a much cleaner sense of that often, of just a natural ease of questioning and reimagining and I heard someone describe recently that it was very confusing to explain to a teenager why like this $20 bill was worth all of this stuff. And kids have this natural questioning of, of these systems that I think is very both innocent and beautiful. It's true because money we've had very recently in the news, different kind of Ponzi schemes or cryptocurrencies coming. Sure. Money itself is just like a giant Ponzi. I mean, in its way, if we all just stop buying into it. An idea that enough of us have believed that also in many ways makes society run in beautiful ways in lots of instances. And certainly we've gotten carried away with it as well. And so who for you have been important teachers? I mean, you strike me on the one hand as being one who was very respectful of what you can learn from people, but also being autodidactic. Possible. And that I really am tremendously grateful for him for barking my career in this. And for a while, I really didn't want to watch anyone else because I didn't want to, it seemed like I had found a style and I didn't want to lose that style that was mine. Yeah, I got started because an artist named Inq performed a poem and then something was just moving in my body. And I started writing on the way home and it was 
I'd never even known that medium was, but I'm honestly, I'm more inspired by lots of storytellers. I'm inspired by Lin-Manuel Miranda with Hamilton. I'm inspired by Elizabeth Gilbert and the way he talks about creativity. I'm inspired by Dave Chappelle and like just the way he spins truth and comes. A lot of comedians who just speak truth beautifully or their truth beautifully. And so I think a range of different sort of disciplines really inspire me on the storytelling front. I haven't been as honestly studied just in poetry itself because I am more drawn to the storytelling element than I am with the meter or logistics of poetry. Yes, it seems very much your style is aligned with your voice. And I mean, it has a form. You mentioned Dave Chappelle there. And of course, he's a performer, a comedian who's crossed lines. I mean, you shine a light on areas that are difficult to discuss. Do you find it hard to step over certain lines or have there been moments where you censor yourself? I mean, I think the person I am now, much of this work was written, you know, something like four or five years ago, as I then took all the time to turn it into films. And the person I was then in writing that, I think, was much more concerned with making sure that, frankly, the message was digestible and that I was like saying it in a way that really could be heard. I think who I've become is much more comfortable just saying whatever it is that I believe and is true and letting the cards fall wherever they may from that. And I still do have a passion for sharing things in a way that like it can be taken in. But I think I used to be much more willing to shift or alter how I wanted to express something. And now... I care more about it being authentic and true to me than I do about whether anybody is agreeing or listening or able to hear it. And if I'm crossing lines or crossing or people are offended by what I have to say, then, okay, I'm here. I want to listen. I want to hear what you have to say about that and what that brought up for you. And I'm not willing to change what is true for me unless you change my mind or unless like, you know, as we grow and change as we always do, but I'm not willing to, I think when something is deeply true for me, I'm not willing to censor it because of what feels right for others. So this was a five-year gestation on the film? So yeah, those po- it was first recreating the live show, which was each of those poems performed live. And that was probably like two years and then three years of turning it into this film, which just over COVID was quite the undertaking. And I had never done anything of this kind of size and scale. Yeah. And could you speak a little bit about your different collaborators? Because you talked about how you felt poetry moving through you, the physical experience. Now we have animation, we have dance. Absolutely. So Aaron Richards directed it, who is a friend who is actually just going to work with me on the Aliens poem, which is a piece about men helping men see the world through women's eyes through the analogy of imagine if aliens invaded and they were giant and super sexually attracted to dudes. And that was she was going to direct it. And she was like, well, who's directing the whole show? And I said, maybe you are. And she sort of laughed and was like, okay, let me see if I can take this on. She was so wonderful, incredibly creative, has this like second gear that she kicks it up in to get things done. And it couldn't have happened without her. The animation was someone named Ryan Woodward, and he's just a spectacularly talented animator. He actually, he made that animation independently of the poem. I wrote the poem independently of seeing that animation, and they just happened to blend together so beautifully. He was like, wow, oh my God, yes, totally go use this. Yeah, Matt Friedel is another director who's just was full stack directing, producing, editing effects. He just had the whole gamut. And, and Doug Larson, who edited it, really brought it to life with so much footage. Just it took a village for sure to make something of that size. And everyone just basically poured it in for the love. Everyone, you know, I paid people, of course, but it was we could not have done what we did to like at the actual cost of what things would have cost. People really just appreciated the messages and wanted to be a part of it. And I'm so grateful for that.
I think it's a wonderful selection of the poems that they perform so well. As you know, you've been trying it out and performing on, I guess it's on five continents you performed some of these poems. Are there some that are just too quiet or subtle or delicate to perform? You talk about having the kind of private poetry and those that are meant for consumption. I mean, for a variety of different reasons, absolutely. There's some that really are for me and are about, it's like... You know, they're about subjects that feel like right now they're for me and not something I want to get up on stage and say. There have been poems for women that are feel very specifically just for them and not wanting to infuse the energy of others into that. They're just really wanting it to be a pure expression and something that, that she can take in herself. And there are some that like that just feel so abstract or so related to my own life that I don't think they're going to be relatable to others. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I really get this and I'll share it with someone as it feels called to in a moment, but I'm not eager to or just not as excited. I'm happy to, but not as excited to like go out and be like, oh, people are going to resonate with this. Because I'm like, I think I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> and I'm glad I am because art is a beautiful therapy tool for me as well. But those ones don't feel as they're not in the pipeline in the same way for me to work on bringing them to the world. And as you perform to different countries and your poetry has been translated into many languages, are you able to distance yourself sometimes to ask yourself how New York or the English language and the grammar has influenced your way of thinking of the world. I think I've most been exposed to that when I was in a writing group with another poet. His name is Halim Mahdi. And he was just writing about like writing about his frustration that he was writing in English. And I found that to be really beautiful and moving and just did help me notice just like the nature of how much language and culture shapes how we literally see the world. And it certainly has influenced mine and my being. Sadly, monolingual, I don't have as much of, um, of that understanding, except that when I learned Italian in college and spent about a year there, I was just, as I was getting ready to leave, starting to develop a sense of humor in Italian. And it was like the sense of humor of a five-year-old. Like that was what my language was capable of, like was saying outrageous things or silly things in a moment. But that was a starting, I was starting to experience how much it takes to start to build like a personality in a language. And that was really fascinating. When you're living in different countries, sometimes it's nice as well when you are at that stage, that childlike stage, not understanding at all, then you understand that other level of communication, the rhythms and all these things. Sometimes you're like, wow, I didn't notice this because I was blinded by my language. Yeah. When I was in Paris, there was, it was very funny because I found people would start talking to me and then like just very quickly move into French and with each other. And I had a great time just literally listening to the flow, the poetry of the language without understanding much of it anything but there is such a musicality of it and also people are so like beautiful and stylish and I very much enjoyed it without understanding much of what was being said at all. You know it's funny because I remember when I was living in Ireland and a lot of Irish they're kind of kind of like poets like they have one foot in poetry and mm -hmm. it's like as long as it sounds right sometimes it doesn't matter if it makes sense. And I remember walking and hearing two women talking and one said to the other, it's just a phrase he's going through. It, it, it makes no sense, but actually it makes perfect sense. Yeah, he's just going through a phrase, you know, he's just going through a phrase right now. I like that a lot. I think in a way it makes us think about it. It's like, yeah, it's how we form ourselves. You address this in your writing. We have these identities, you know, we put this identity on ourselves, left or right or whatever our belief system and we then limit ourselves. And if we can somehow break through those phrases, we can get to this deeper truth and understanding. And common humanity often. And yeah, I really value that. I really value when we can touch what is at the center of us, which I really do believe is both unique and the same all at once. And there's this beautiful metaphor, and I'm not going to know the exact words of how you expressed it, 
But it's how we're kind of living in whatever country we're living in, but we're a divisive societies left and right. And you use the metaphor of the boxers. They embrace each other, you know? They can't, they're so close, they can't hit each other. Yeah, uh, I felt when two boxers get too close to hit each other, they hug each other and not because they love each other. Because when two people get too close, it becomes too hard to strike each other, hard not to smell the humanity on one another. It's confusing to see our reflection in our enemy's eyes. Helps us start to recognize where our actions might be misaligned with the identities that we've defined. And yeah, I loved that. That was one where as I started writing it, like just it's fun to be in an analogy, working through a phrase, unraveling and discovering of all the new details of truth inside of a metaphor. And that really felt like one of them of in this fight, like that hug and that hug, not because, oh, we're all getting along. No, it's just like, there's nothing else to do, but hug more like right here in the fight. And that just felt poignant for where, certainly where America was at. And I think a lot of the world is really going through partially because of social media, these very big polarizations of political perspective and it being harder and harder to just see the humanity in each other. And I'm not here to say that any one side isn't doing awful or wonderful things for the world. What I am here to say is that it seems like we're busier fighting than we are actually addressing the things that need addressing. And I would love if we could put our energy literally towards working on the issues we care about, towards making the world better for whoever, whatever group, whatever humanity, whatever anything we're trying to help as opposed to spending our time dunking on each other on social media and talking about how awful the other side is, whatever that other side might be. I feel like we're wasting our energy fighting when we could be doing the things that we're actually caring enough to fight about. I feel so unfortunate that through social media, or it must be said that other experiences beyond social media have been drugified. The news, so many things have been. Yeah, not just. We eat. Totally. Like everything, basically. <laughs> when Once we, you know, learn that we could make thing addictive, then it comes back to poison us. And uh, yeah, I like to work on the solution. So you have an alternative vision for social media and or maybe it's not even social media, but it's just about realigning these systems with our values. So, yeah, this is the other side of my work uh, in trying to help especially young people figure out how to navigate this digital chaos ocean that they are growing up inside of. And the digital world that I would love to be different is I would love it if all these social networks were using their data to literally create new experiences and opportunities that we would later rate as meaningful to help us like to help us find new people in our lives we're happier there but to not measure all their success on clicks or time or likes or shares but like what human value or goal or whatever it might be are we contributing to with this technology and a social network that was actually improving our social lives that way or even like a news network that was so focused on are we helping people be more more informed as opposed to what is getting the clicks or the attention or what's the scariest thing. That's the kind of tech world that I want to live in. And then when I'm not being an artist and creating things like this poetry special, which I'm so passionate about and very much want the world to see, I am speaking with middle schoolers, high schoolers, and their parents and teachers about how social media is impacting their lives and just trying to help them develop some resources and different perspectives to help navigate that impact. And I very much like this description of AI as assistive intelligence and should be designed for the purpose of the people and not the purpose of the technologists. Assistive intelligence. I like that a lot. Yeah. The app store could be the help center. What are different things that make me more creative? What help put food on the table for my family? And then just like rating things in terms of what they actually help to achieve or feel or accomplish in life as opposed to just this basic five stars for Candy Crush. App works great. It's just like, great for what? And so how, what was your selection process for the different pieces that you included? 
So it was really related to the show itself and doing it live. And for people to listen to an hour of content like this, I think it really needs to have like laughs and funny moments at the right time. So I've very much focused on like, can there be things that I've known from performing on stage? People tend to chuckle or giggle throughout. Can I make sure that there's those are spaced out throughout to give people a break from some of the more serious content and to make sure it flows attentionally to make sure that this can be received throughout the full hour. And so it was a little bit about like, how do I get from one poem to the next? Is it naturally, is there a natural story there? Um, when I perform on stage, each of the poems themselves stays the same. And sometimes I'll vary a little bit how I talk my way from one to the other. But I wanted to formulate a story of an hour that could flow naturally from poem one to poem nine. And this was the order that seemed to make the more sense. There was a, there were a couple other in there at one point that it seemed smarter to take out because they didn't seem to flow as naturally. And yeah, this is where it happened to land. But each poem was written independently. And then it was sculpting the show itself from those poems. And how do you work with the music and those kind of things that, you know, to ease the transitions? Or yeah, music piece is really hard because music changes the dynamic of a film so much. Like it's hard to even express how much just changing the track behind a film would change the entire feeling of a film. There were several composers. One was Chris Gabriel, who created the music for the Aliens piece. He was really such a pro and created something so cool. It was such a quick process of working with him. My friend Rob Resnick is someone who I studied abroad with and is a professional, like a pop musician. And he just wanted to help me create for the Breaking Up in the Digital Age poem and just working back and forth with him. I think it should feel more this way. He gives samples and crafting something that where the intention is always, can you help just enhance the words throughout? I want to make sure we're not distracting and just enhancing the words and the feeling. And that's the composition process. And occasionally I'll find some stock music that I feel does a good enough job, but it's a tricky thing. The very, like even people who score films are often like, this is a totally different concept. So it's a unique challenge for any kind of composer. And, and yeah, Chris Gabriel and Rob Resnick and a couple others were really beautiful to work with. In and when you're writing, are you thinking of the music? Do you have your own internal rhythm? But do you have the idea of who, what composer might do something with it? So I often, I have like the cinematic type music that I listen to while I write and having some kind of music going on in my head is very helpful for the rhythm of the writing process. And that has never been the music that literally is shared along with the poem in the past. Uh, maybe it will be one day, but I certainly love that kind of rhythmic structure to, to work within to keep for my writing process. But I don't have in my hand, okay, I'm writing it like this and there's going to be this type of music with it. That's just not how my brain has worked to this point. Do you find, because you're always having, you know, rhythms, I don't know if you're always thinking about poetry, but you know, what are you like in your silences? What am I like in my silences? Like, what are my thoughts like in my silences? I'm a pretty anxious person. <laughs> uh, in my silences, I am sometimes in like a deep sense of peace, but oftentimes worrying about all sorts of this and that. And in some ways, poetry or art is a break from that. There's like a sense of clarity, a sense of expression that is a break from my own internal monologue and anxieties. But I'm a pretty anxious person, sadly. And as you say that, I have to describe, because this is audio, that you're smiling. <laughs> and so it's a contradiction <laughs> because you seem like a quite joyful person. No, I don't know, because that's a question that really you know, it's impossible to answer. I wonder, I think that artists are often compulsive people. And so I wonder, is there ever a moment that when we don't have a thought, like we have to always direct it to either making, maybe listening. It's hard to know. I wonder if I ever had a pure silence. Mm, like truly empty mind. Yeah. Presence is that of like 
often with individuals or just certain moments where I can really step outside of my brain and feel like I'm fully just being here and experiencing. I have had that. It's certainly not the norm for me. I would love for it to happen more often. Let whatever is happening happen, says Max Stolso, as he describes the philosophy of openness on artistry and poetry expressions. Listening to Stossel's thoughts, I feel like I'm not only learning the essence of creativity, but also about the philosophy of life. I feel especially touched by how he's being truthful and honest with himself and his creativity. In the era in which social media and the internet generate a fast-paced environment, in which people are receiving numerous unfiltered information every day, I appreciate people like Max Stossel who keep their truthfulness, passion, and love with the courage to express those personal feelings to the outside world. I believe authenticity and passion are the keys to art expression, which create intimate connections between the artist and the audience just through the artwork. Stossel shares the challenge he has about how to get his ideas to people and who should he share his expressions to. As a film and journalism student, I'm also passionate about storytelling. And I found myself sometimes wondering similar questions about the purpose of the story and whether my ideas value to other people. For me, the feeling of distributing my artistry to a larger audience can bring me a sense of fulfillment. Knowing Stasso has his intellectual purpose of making art allows me to reflect on my own future goals. I appreciate when he says, we should put energy towards working on the issues to make the world a better place for humanity and people in need. Let us keep listening to Max Stossel's interview. In the second half of this episode, Stossel will share more about his family influences and how he becomes the authentic and creative person he is now. Now back to the interview. And as you collaborate with dance, do you also dance? I enjoy dancing, but I would not call myself a dancer by any means compared to the people I'm working with here who are so wonderful at it and I worked with a lot of, in this piece especially, immersive theater actors and dancers. There's a show called Sleep No More in New York, which is like a, an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth, but it's immersive theater. You walk through the room and all these different actors like have these interactions with the people as they're moving through this entire building. And I love immersive theater so much. And I was really glad to work with, uh, yeah, these very talented immersive theater actors. I just think they have such good captures of humanity and they're tend to be very good dancers as well because there's a lot of dance in those sort of shows. Then Asleep No More and Then She Fell are both just, if you're ever in New York, truly spectacular immersive theater programs. And yeah, Taylor Myers, Isabel, Jonathan, and Hi and Rachel Berman, they were all part of those shows. And they worked with me on the Aliens piece and on Subway Love. And I think that all writing is a, you know, touches upon improvisation. And I wonder, but yeah, what role does improvisation or a sense of data or being open to chance play in your work? Huge. I think that's the goal, just to be open, to like let whatever is happening happen and to let it come through. It's a dance between imposing what I want to say as opposed to like what is happening right now. And I think for most artists, I think improv improvisation is an underutilized skill of just like what wants to come out as opposed to the mind needing to make things to be a certain way. I guess I can only speak for myself, but for me, I love the flow that comes out much more than anything I like. Just paintedly, or sorry, painstakingly with my mind trying to craft. I love the improv, the flow, letting what wants to happen happen. And do you find you think through your body or do you ever like use your physicality as you're actually right, you know, in the writing process? Sometimes I'll feel very clear of like, oh, I want to express like this 
this line, I want to make sure that I'm expressing. And I certainly feel the writing in my body. I feel the beginning of writing. So there's chill tears on the back of my neck standing up. Chills, like bodily sensations are very good clues for me that writing is starting to happen and it's time to pay attention. And there are times where I'll like make sure I know I'm going to like do a big motion on stage when I say this line or any, I'm not thinking about that for every line throughout the poems, but there are certainly ones where I'm like, ooh, it'll be funny or poignant to do this motion at this line. Yes. And what kind of like mythologies or collective stories would you sometimes be drawing upon, you know, as, you know, like metaphors for our humanity? Mythologies or collective stories. In more recent writings, this is less true of, the, of this special, but the next one will very much draw on basically a religious or spiritual concept that like that my friend Alice Frank and Derek Cake and a couple of others have really helped instill in me as literally true. Um, but like that I am literally you, that we are one thing looking through many different eyes and like one thing having all of these different human experiences and not as like a metaphor of we're all one. No, like actually there's actual literal oneness. And what does that look like to explore with words? But that is a concept that I will certainly be playing more on in the next, the next special. Oh, that's beautiful. I think that's a less frightening and more open, uh, joyful kind of idea of what is the singularity. Yeah, the singularity gets put through a, a tech concept where I think technology often approaches the reality of, imitates reality, but does not recreate it and is my experience of it and so i like that as a different take on the singularity that we are already inside of a singularity compared to needing to recreate one with technology i like that yeah it is very nice because i think that you must feel that with your writing and performance and various arts and not just in the arts but you can actually tap into other people's mind i mean it sounds esoteric for some people but you can anticipate what they will say and what is doing that what is connecting us Yes, exactly. I don't want to answer that question. The question itself is brilliant. What is doing that? What is connecting us? And if you really reflect on that, I think you start to look at the connection that just is. I was very, like I've been hired sometimes to write poems for corporations or organizations that are trying to share their message in a unique way. And there have been two times in my life where when I was approached, I said, hey, I don't think I'm the best. I was like, I, you're talking about something very intense. One was child sexual abuse and the other was coming out of the closet as a Bulgarian teenager. And I was like, these are experiences that they're poets who will have experienced this and you can find them and they will be able to speak more authoritatively and authentically on this. And both times they were pretty insistent. They're like, no, we want people who haven't been through this to understand. And that's why we want you to do it so that you can tap into that empathy and, sh and share from your perspective of someone who hasn't gone through this. And that exercise of really trying to interview and steal people who have gone through this and trying to relate to it from my perspective was a really a powerful and intense exercise in empathy and in our connectedness. Well, yeah, it's good that you actually defined that you it's very important because there is often the most appropriate person for telling their own story. So thank you for sharing that. We have a One Planet podcast where we know that to solve climate change, we have to work with corporations. We have to work with people who can make a big change. But do you ever feel uncomfortable about using your storytelling skills, you know, commodifying it in that way or knowing that it will be commodified? It's not my favorite thing. Uh, like I wouldn't work with anyone where I think what they're doing is like harmful or anything like that. I would just rather not take the money and not work with them. But I should say it's probably one or two instances. And so I don't feel like the best work comes for those, those brands because it's more they're hiring Max's brain to try and figure out how to tell the story as opposed to like 
what you can't hire, which is the pure inspiration and just like what wants to express and wants to come out. And so I wouldn't just like give my poetry to, or my created pieces to corporations, even if they offered to pay me because I wouldn't feel it wouldn't feel right. But I'm open to working with companies to help them tell their stories as long as I don't think they're being bad for the world. No, it's interesting that, of course, you can't give your personal writing or something that even you've shared with other people, you can't like then put a brand on it. That's wrong, you know, to change it, its original purpose in that way. But it seems like maybe the writing that you do there, the communicating that you do, do there is that the product, but then maybe the change that can be done is that maybe inspiring the corporation or the entity to f feel empowered that they are all or have the capacity to be artists so that maybe the ripple effect is something else than the product that's produced. I very much have come to believe in the ripple effect as an artist. And yeah, there was a time where I, especially when I was trying to do more activism, thinking, okay, well, what's the tangible outcome that comes out of this piece? And I've come much more to believe. You just never know how your art is exactly going to affect people or inspire or influence and especially with This Panda is Dancing, which is another of the short films that I've released. But so that one I have just dripped over the years. There are many people who will reach out and say, oh, I saw this and inspired us to like think about this differently. Or, you know, I assume there are many more who haven't reached out as that video was viewed millions of times online. And so to be comfortable as an artist knowing, I just don't know what the impact exactly is going to be of each of these different pieces. But if I believe in them and they're from the heart and it just feels right throughout to share them with the world, to just trust that that matters. And I really do. I really do trust that that matters. And I did not used to, but I really do. Well, it's very inspiring to speak with you. And I was wondering about your upbringing, your parents and how they may have inspired you on your journey. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in a, like a Jewish family in the Upper West Side of New York. We were more than so like religious as much as Jewish cultural family. And my father is a journalist. My mother's a therapist. And I think they very much have been mega influences on me, no doubt. My father is very skeptical and always was like doubting the narrative and asking very pointed and focused questions, trying to get the heart of what is real, what is true. And I think my mom in her own way emotionally, like asking questions and opening up to try and get to the heart of what is real, what is true. So I like to think that I got different angles of inquiry towards truth and expression of that truth from both of them. And have a very good relationship with them. I'm in their home right now, visiting them in, in New York City. Uh, and yeah, they've been, they were wonderful parents. I have so many forms of privilege. And one of them that is underrated is love privilege from parents of like, that my parents really prioritized me and cared about me and my sister. And just like, they just deeply valued and cared about us. And that's not something everybody gets. Yes. It's very interesting that, and your father is the John Stossel. Yeah. Yes, it's because of the, it seems like the two sides of their truth seeking and maybe it seems like a exterior measurable truths. I would think in journalism, it's often we have to think that there is one truth that we're looking to represent. And then your mother, these interior truths, which is sometimes, you know, harder to put, you know, a single definition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say I've shifted over time from dad's form towards mom's form in terms of how I'm, how I and valuing them have come to believe and stand for people's individual and personal truths being valid and important more so than one kind of, hey, here, let's look at the facts. This is what X, Y, or Z yeah, is. Um, but yeah, that is, dad has been a journalist for many years, was on 2020, and then that was on Fox News for a while, and then is creating his own content right now. He doesn't agree with 2020 any more than he agrees with Fox News. He's always kind of been in his own category of independent thinkers. 
Yeah, that's a hard place to keep because, as you say, we were always made to choose sides. You also say in the film, when have any of us been right about everything? What's so funny is I performed that show live and then I, my dad's hand went up. He was like, I've been right about everything, which is him joking around. But so, and my mom pulling his hand down and like, stop, you're going to distract him. But I laughed in my head. And he's certainly my dad. In that politics poem, my dad is very present of watching a lot of people like look at my dad as like a monster for his often libertarian political beliefs and knowing that I see, I know where he comes from, where he deeply and firmly believes that the best way to like help and support people is like personal freedom and less government telling people what to do. And people come in thinking he doesn't care and watching how deep his care is. And then like wanting to help people understand, I think certainly that is, has been an influence in, in that poem of really deeply wanting people to listen to each other better. Yes. You also describe so tenderly your barber. You talked about, you mentioned spirituality. And just tell us a little bit about him and I guess your own spirituality. I know you're not quite religious. But, so yeah, Derek is, that was him in the film. Like that is my barber. His name is Derek Hakes. He works on fellow barber in New York and Brooklyn and Williamsburg. And so if you're ever looking for what's way more than a haircut, you should definitely check him out. And I just happened to stumble across his, like his chair one day and he's become one of my closest friends. And he was really there for me through like some of the biggest heartbreaks of my life and has just been a rock and helping me open up yeah, to the, to the higher power, which I think he would see as just that life is always happening for us and not to us and that we are being guided by like the most wonderful, warm, loving parent that we could ever even possibly imagine. And yeah, he's been a spiritual guide and teacher for sure. And it's funny, he was an ordained interface faith minister. His friend Alice Frank, who I also mentioned, is a rabbi and like of different backgrounds, it feels like they're pointing to the same thing, which is basically the one thing and we're all it. And we like not just I am my brother's keeper, I am my brother, I am my sister. And that, yeah, that we're all God looking through different eyes. And so it is a beautiful message. And you put that message in, in different people's voices that like you tell the story of a woman looking back at her past and asking of the people in her past, do they know that sometimes we're living in, among such beauty and we don't see it? Yeah. And so I think even if we see parts of it, the depth and fullness of really seeing it that I think we maybe only get in moments of our life. And I do tend to believe that in transitioning or passing, there is more noticing of that. And yeah, we don't have to dive too much into the spiritual realm of it, but I happen to, I tend to believe in reincarnation. My next special is going to be about consciousness and God and death and these things and these themes. So let me gather my words and thoughts and then I'll express them to you in a much more polished form. It's an interesting question. I think that, as you say, we all have different stories, but I think that inside of us, if we can open to a sense of grace or a sense of wonder, and whether it's reincarnation or just understanding that the story continues unfolding, that it's not all about us. I think that that's what's important. Sure. I'm not too married to one particular ideology. Uh, yeah, agreed. That really resonates with me. I really agree. And in terms of, I mean, if we think about it now because of, this is a very, they say, transformational decade in terms of the environment and climate change. And you know, what are your reflections on that and your commitment to the behaviors that we need to change? Yes, I've been 
in the process of figuring out my own relationship to change behaviors, it's like I give like a monthly like carbon offsetting payment, which did feel nice because it feels like a personal type thing. But obviously that's so small in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, I also I tend to believe that change tends to come in like hyper jumps. And so I'm really not a fan of like intense focused or like military or governmental type action on little things that don't actually make a difference. It's like, I would much prefer people to have their freedoms. And then, I mean, I think we actually saw recently, there's been a technological innovation in fission that could in theory be like, just absolutely, totally change the whole scope of what we thought was possible in terms of our energy use. And like, it feels to me like innovations like that end up making real difference and whether or not we're, you know using plastic straws while like just isn't quite so significant. And so very big on what are we doing that actually is making an impact as opposed to just, okay, I did this and now I feel better about the environment because there's a lot of that, the second one going around right now. Yes. On the fusion, we're doing interviews on that coming up. The conferences are important, but I can't imagine COP100. What are we still going to be talking? (laughs) We just, we have to get to those big actions and support those bigger movements. And I'm looking forward to your other special, but I know that there's a gestation process. I need to give birth to this one to really get working on it. I have really felt for years now, like I, I need to get this out. And you are a part of that. Thank you so much for being a part of that, of helping it reach the eyes and ears and hearts that it's meant to reach. And in giving this special to the world, it will be live. Yeah, at wordsthatmove.com slash special is where it will be and people can have it. And then once it's out, I think I will feel much more spacious to be able to work on the next one. So as you think about the future and education and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think like on a deep level, some of my work with young people is really about just like that I fundamentally believe that life is spectacularly beautiful and there's so much meaning and so much magic. And I oftentimes can see with them social media doing such a number on the way they're seeing each other and seeing the world that they're not even in touch with like the beauty that reality has to offer. And so I guess what I would like them to know is that like, that there's so much more magic and amazingness in this existence than they can possibly imagine. And if they can be open to it, life is going to reward them for that. And, and I think the arts are a beautiful, both transmutation of that expression of that way of taking that in art can also be a vehicle towards it. And I certainly love it, love it for that. And yeah, I'm in the education world because I care so deeply about life and about meaning and about humanity. And I'm hoping to be able to provide perspectives and tools that can help people find their way to that beauty. Thank you for your commitment to young people and education and bringing beauty into the world. Thank you, Max Stossel, for the intimacy, honesty, and sense of wonder you bring to your poetry and films and for inviting us to question the systems and illusions we live in to help us appreciate what gives life meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. And whoever's listening, hope to see you around on the internet. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yami Shasky Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this episode are Mia Funk and River Zhang. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Anthenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, 
just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.